It's 7 o'clock. Do you know where your freedom is? Coming to you live and electrified from Studio A, high atop the escarpments of Whitetail Peak, the roof, 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 of the American Hindu Kush. This is Dr. Amp doing the vamp for liberty, climbing the ramp for justice, and lighting the lamp of freedom. So what's on your mind tonight? I mean, you know I'm going to tell you mine. We're sinking down deep in the mud and the fucks are at it again. The same vast global corporate conspiracy, different day. You must see, hear, understand, and act. Act now. Friends, we all live in the mud, in the shit. Shovel your way out of the shit. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Walls, and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Sunday, June 11th, and this morning we'll dig a little deeper into Twin Peaks, The Return, and Part 5 in particular, and we'll do so with Andrew Griffin, editor and owner of The Red Dirt Report, available at reddirtreport.com. Andrew has been a guest of the program before, and so, of course, we'll naturally link to those appearances, but it's been a while. How are you doing this morning, and do you have a cosmic flashlight? Yes, uh, yeah, I think it's uh it was under the the Christmas tree this past year and uh yeah, I'm uh, I'm flickering it into the sky here on the plains of Oklahoma and enjoying a damn fine cup of coffee. Yeah, me too. I'm e- actually using a tw- uh Twin Peaks Tweed's Cafe coffee cup this morning. Oh, I can dig that. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let me start off by saying when I came here to my office to uh to talk to you over the phone I uh, noticed a package in, in my uh, mailbox, and it was in the shape of a book. It was from the uh, it was a used book from the Goodwill Industries of Houston, Texas. And I thought, ah, this is the Dale Cooper book. And because back in 1991, they had you know were you know marketing Twin Peaks related uh, items, and uh, there were a few. There were the tapes, the tapes for Diane, who. Uh, Agent Dale Cooper spoke to on those multiple microcassette tape recorders he had. And then there was a book called The Autobiography of FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes. And I had read it back at the time, but I, I'd forgotten a lot about it. It basically starts off with a young Dale Cooper. Um, it's his uh, diary, essentially. It's like, you know, you had Laura Palmer had her own diary. Well, Dale Cooper had one. They decided to, kind of, I guess, cash in on that. But it really makes for fascinating reading. And what was most interesting is that whoever mailed this to me stuck a, the receipt in on page uh, 62, and the and the entry is for June 18th, uh, 1973, and apparently uh, young Dale has gone to uh, parts unknown and returned and is working digging holes for the National Park Service. And what was interesting is that uh, they go to Mount Rushmore, which really struck me that it was on this particular page because of what was going on in 1973 and, you know, with the the wounded knee incident that was going on with the American Indian uh, movement going on back in the early 70s. 
And uh, the fact that Mount Rushmore is making this kind of big return on uh, the current Twin Peaks, uh, the return program, um, you know, where if uh, folks watching the show have noticed uh, David Lynch's character, uh, Deputy Director Gordon Cole, and his uh, assistant agent, uh, Albert Rosenfield, played by the late Miguel Ferrer, they're going to South Dakota to see who they think is the missing agent, Dale Cooper. And so uh, Gordon Cole says, well, this doesn't, I don't see Mount Rushmore. And uh, Rosenfield says, well, I brought you a picture. And I I kept thinking about kind of Mount Rushmore and its sort of symbolism and how I'm seeing this sort of symbolism. and, And this is after having read Mark Frost's The Secret History of Twin Peaks, it's a companion to the show. I urge everyone to, who's into the show to purchase this book somehow or, or get, a, get a copy somehow. It really will help you understand the background, the history, the, you know, the, the oddities that kind of are linked to Twin Peaks, the whole, that whole universe. And uh, you know, Mount Rushmore plays this weird role in all of it because I really think that ultimately Twin Peaks is about America and kind of... Uh, Yet coming to grips in terms with kind of our history, our collective history, good and bad. And, you know, and that this is sort of a mirror, you know, a mirror we're looking into and looking at the reflection coming back at us and, and what that represents. And uh, it's re- really been hitting me lately, particularly with the uh, Native American angle. I think uh, I think that's going to come uh, to the fore in upcoming episodes. The fascinating thing about this book for listeners is that it's not just a history a secret history of twin peaks it's it's like a secret history of the american occult is the way i took it but then also also it's worth noting that we've chosen that as our as our summer book for the 42 minutes seasonal book club the spring show is going to be ulysses which we record coming up on Bloomsday, which is June 16th, and that, that'll be a, a fun show. But then it looks like the the summer book will be The Secret History of Twin Peaks, and then the fall book will be the the final dossier that comes out in, in October. So we're going to have a lot of Twin Peaks ahead of us. Um, that Both those books that I just mentioned are written by Mark Frost, who's the co-creator and, and responsible with David Lynch for Twin Peaks The Return. I'm wondering who wrote this this Agent Cooper memoir. Well, you know, it's funny, right? Before we uh, got on the phone here, I was looking to see who did write it. And there's really not any information about the actual author. I'm looking here now with my copy. It was uh, apparently it's uh, As Heard by Scott Frost. Now, I don't know if that's uh, presumably a relation to Mark Frost. It is, I think. I think it's his brother, actually. Oh, okay. Well, then that would make sense. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting to, to see this this book and see how it kind of, I mean, I just hadn't read it in years. I mean, and what was funny is I was thinking yesterday, it was 26 years ago yesterday that the last episode of the original series uh, appeared on ABC, uh, I remember remember watching it coming home from uh, my job as a bag boy at a local grocery store, wearing my little green, you know, bow tie and taking it off and like sitting down and taking it all in in that two hour final episode. So um, it's uh, it's a good read too if you can find it. They're very hard to find. They have not been uh, reissued. So if you find them on Amazon, they're pretty pricey. Um, the uh, 
my life, my tapes book. But it's again, if you're a, a peaks head like I've been for many years, uh, it's, you'll want it as part of your collection. So uh, <laughs> it's just I, you know, Douglas, I, I've been utterly just blown away. I mean, by the fact that 25 years have passed essentially, and this show has returned in in this manner. And what is great about it, and initially I was put off, but it was it, then it quickly left me, was the fact that it didn't have the sort of the warm glow, 50s style sensibility that it had in, in 1990, 91, because we aren't there anymore. That's not a reflection of our present day. I think what Lynch and Frost have done with the Twin Peaks The Return is uh, was necessary. It, it's it's a sharper, you know, harsher, you know, edgier show. I mean, yes, it's on Showtime and not on fussy old ABC, but it's it's a reflection of the time we're in now. And I think that was a, you know, this wasn't a nostalgic sort of you know flashback. This is this is pretty hardcore in a lot of ways, and uh, and far more, I guess, enlightening in understanding what was going on even even if i'm i i will admit i don't know what half the hell what's going on in the show but I, i'm putting pieces together as i go along and then you know reading as much as i can to kind of put this together and i, I these these clues these puzzle pieces keep kind of going back to this is about america this is about who we are from our founding to present day and what we've become and it's like hunter s thompson you know went to las vegas in the early 70s to write that piece for Rolling Stone about the death of the American dream, essentially, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. I mean, he goes to Las Vegas. What what perfect city in the United States to go to? Um, and the fact that the now Twin Peaks is taking you know uh, place in in Las Vegas partially, I think it makes perfect sense for for our our current society and world. Yeah, in terms of you mentioned hardcore. On this last episode, so today is Sunday morning when we're we're speaking, and so we've seen five hours, and there'll be a, a sixth hour tonight, uh, at some point. But so we're talking before the end last week. After I watched part five, it did not feel like an hour was enough because these 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 parts are so. <laughs> what is it? They're so dense, and they're even though some of the threads are speaking to threads that we know, and where you have to. I, th I think David Lynch composes like a synchromistic, like a synchromistical look at media and try and see the random ephemera in the background to see if it speaks to some kind of interesting uh, synchronicity. And so they'll yeah. look at actors' careers and see what kind of things they can find. David Lynch, I think, is composing scenes with you know with that kind of uh, viewing in mind. And so, like, the more you watch, the more rewarding it can be. That said, my my initial response after watching the fifth part was, "Oh my gosh, that's not enough." But there was lots of things that arose. But the, back to the hardcore, we met a character that some of the podcasts that I listened to this past week didn't pick up on. It's Richard Horn, and he's at the Roadhouse. And it's one of those creepy David Lynch scenes, which I was physically squirming. And, and you know, it's like, oh, this is over the top. This is too much. This is too real. I'm uncomfortable. I, I, I had the exact same reaction, Douglas, and... 
that character is clearly bad news. Now, exactly whose offspring he is uh, remains to be seen. But um, knowing the Horn family and all the troubling background with their, you know, incredible wealth and uh, preponderance uh, to of criminal activity and 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 going on in the small town and I mean it's funny you know you know uh Ben Horn I mean he's just a he's just a like a oligarch type you know developer you know remember in the in the second season of Twin Peaks in the original run I mean he was wanting to turn you know the local Ghostwood National Forest into a golf course or something like that you know a development and there there was that whole kind of underlying uh, storyline going on there, you know, the sort of the greed heads and land rapers of the American West. And, you know, I, I think he's he represents part of that mindset, you know, the Horn family. And they have this wonderful lodge, but uh, it's an attraction there in Twin Peaks, but it's also a place where, uh, you know, deals are done and, and more criminal activity seems to take place. And I, you know, you can see that all throughout the American West, throughout the United States, really. But um, I think setting it in that part of the country really makes most sense because it's like almost the most American part of our. It's, it's odd to say, but it is. It feels that way to me, you know. And it goes back to when guys like Mark Frost and David Lynch were growing up with, you know, all the westerns that were on, and that that really uh, kind of molded those young minds back in those days. And you see reflection of that. And what was interesting, I had, a, I had kind of a weird sync myself I thought I'd share with you. Um, there's, a, there's a book that came out 10 years ago called I'm a Lebowski, You're a Lebowski. And it's uh, kind of an overview of the big Lebowski film the Coen brothers did in 1997, 98, actually. And it's got interviews with various characters who were in the show, in the movie. And uh, the, there was the inspiration for Walter Sobchak that was played by um, John Goodman. And I didn't know this, but it was apparently this screenwriter named John Milius. Are you familiar with him? No. Well, he he apparently uh, won an Academy Award for for his screenplay for Apocalypse Now, and he he's apparently an over the top militarist right winger. Like he calls himself a, a Zen anarchist. Actually, he's so far to the right that he's a Zen anarchist, what, whatever that means. Um, but he did Conan the Barbarian, Red Dawn you know, pretty big films. But what was interesting in the description, opening description of him was, uh, he says, I'm not housebroken. And then the writer says, for many years, a large photograph of, of an atom bomb exploding over the Bikini Islands occupied the wall behind his desk. And that really grabbed my attention. Uh, because the one time I stood up in shock during this Twin Peaks The Return is when uh, Deputy Director Cole, David Lynch, and then, as I said, Rosenfield, they walk into his office, and in behind his desk is an identical image, a an atomic explosion. Um, and I don't know which test it was. You know, some people want to say it was Trinity in 1945. I don't, I don't believe it is. But it was likely one of the tests either done in Nevada test site, which is near Las Vegas, or in the, the Marshall Islands, which is where the Bikini Atoll was, and that's where we had the largest uh, nuclear detonation ever in 1954. But I thought that was very telling. And if you go back and you said the secret of, uh, history of Twin Peaks is going to be on the reading list, well, that's it goes into that. 
and this new agent that we've been introduced to, uh, uh, Tamara Preston, uh, played by the actress Krista Bell, she, uh, she's kind of basically compiled all this information through the, quote, archivist who's uh, put together all this information for a Twin Peaks uh, individual named Doug, Dougie or Douglas Milford, yeah. who was the bro- brother of the mayor of Twin Peaks. So it goes all into that. But I thought it was interesting because I, when I saw the image of that atom bomb exploding in Cole's office, I said, who on earth would have an image like that in their office in, in such a so pro- prominent position? And then I, I'm reading this book randomly, and apparently this John Milius, who was an inspiration for the Coen brothers for the character of Walter Sobchak in The Big Lebowski. I mean, it was just kind of, I mean, the fact they went into that particular little detail and I happened to read it when I'm asking that question of myself this past week, I thought that was kind of an interesting sink. Hmm. Well, but you just, you stirred the pot and now there's too many, too many different threads to grab onto. Um, I, I'm sorry. I have a tendency of doing that. <laughs> I, I'm, my mind kind of works that way. So there's some books out there, and I think at this point there's enough out there that it's hard to know what is considered canon and what's not because, you know, uh, when when people are quote-unquote cashing in, you know, it doesn't matter. They're just trying to get – you know, you're trying to get back into that world. But the have you – the Cooper tapes and the Secret Diary have both become uh, audio versions, read by Cheryl Lee and Kyle McLaughlin. Have you experienced those? Uh, nothing uh, current. Uh, the only ones I've I heard were back in 1991, and in fact, I checked them out of my local library. I won't say what city. Um, back then, when I was in high school, and uh, forgot to return them. Um, so, but I've <laughs> it's years, but I've lost those tapes, but um, they were very uh, you know informative in, in getting to understand uh, the, the Dale Cooper character. Um, I uh, the, you know the, I guess it's I, I'm trying to articulate just how this has sort of struck me. You know, for a while I knew, of course, that Twin Peaks was returning, but I didn't want to get my hopes up too much. And I was trying to avoid any uh, discussions, information about the show on the various threads. Uh, I, I just wanted to be it, for it to be a surprise, essentially. And it's it's interesting that how I jumped right back into it, and it's like no time has passed. It's like, and that's what's interesting about the show is that the time timelines are kind of overlapping, or, or you know, just a like like in Interstellar, kind of in these different rooms. Just like you know, the red room. You don't you don't know exactly when things are taking place. It's 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 kind of confusing, but interesting at the same time. For instance, a little detail no one may have noticed. Yeah, is when is when uh, the bad Cooper is driving and he has his accident, and you know he's uh, it's like the particular time, like two fifty two fifty three yes, correct. And the car flips, and I have an eye for detail, and I know license plates well enough, well enough to know when they were issued in, in particular states. I know it's an odd thing to say, but um, the car he was driving uh, had a South Dakota license plate that, that was issued in the early 2000s. And when we're in Buckhorn, South Dakota, earlier in the series, and, and like episode one or two, when we meet the character of Bill Hastings, played by Matthew Lillard, his car has the more current version, which is 
uh, great faces, great places. That's the slogan of South Dakota. It's the current issued plate. So what's going on, unless his car just it wasn't, I guess he got it out of storage and it may have just been sitting there for a while and he's driving a car with old plates, but are we to think that this things happening are from earlier in the 2000s and then what's going on in Buckhorn is current day? I don't know, but, you know, this jumping around of, of times and dates and places. Um, well, that's interesting because Dougie's car, which is uh, parked at the Rancho Rosa uh, subdivision, which is, you know, to um, continue down your Mirror of America path, this kind of... Uh, subdivision that is definitely like not really it was like a boom a boom division that is definitely not quite booming right now it it looks like right. you know th- this expansion and growth idea of capitalism that's just didn't pan out and so it's it's kind of boarded up and and uh it's it's uh, you know like um blue velvet where there's this image of the you know the fire trucks in the 50s and everyone's smiling but then david lynch zeroes in on all the bugs under the grass um Right, and 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 like the the uh, the 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 drug addicted woman and her, you know, saying one one nine over and over. Right, but so Dougie's license, um, I think, says two thousand three. So his Silver State Dougie Love uh, car, <laughs> <laughs> or it could be Dougie Live. You know, it's like D U G E and then a space L V. The the plate tag says two thousand or zero three on it, and so you I think you're you're on to something with that. Well, um, and I'll, just as a as a correction, I won't say this for sure. I know uh, folks in Nevada have said that that does the 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 sticker on the on their plates is designates a month rather than the year. Oh, really? So. So if it's I know like Iowa and a few other states do the same thing. It's kind of become this new odd trend. But um, the uh, Nevada plate is I I want to say it's an older version anyway. So, but you know back in the my brother who who actually he and I talk about the show all the time. He know remembered a detail back when they were when David Lynch was filming the first season, the first episode in fact, back in 1989. He saw a car in the, one of the shots, and he said he was yelling at the prop person to cover up the Washington State license plate that said '89. You know, expires '89 because he didn't. He wanted it to keep it kind of out of time. Although their dates are used, it's still kind of loose enough to where you feel like you're sort of somewhat out of time, like a dream. And that's so. I think Lynch wants to kind of keep one foot on the ground and one foot up in the cloud somewhere at the same time. And I think he's been very effective in, in doing that and continuing to do so with the, with what we've got with uh, the return. Back to Rancho Rosa. R- Rancho Rosa is, I think, the name of the production company, or I'm not really certain, but that's the thing that we see first when we start an episode with this kind of flashing, um, right. el- electrified thing that's different than the end flashing electrified thing, but similar in that, that, you know, it's similar musical cue kind of thing, but each episode's a different color, but Rancho Rosa, you know, it's like the, the pink ranch or, you know, so there's still something about this red room or pink something that is a cue to uh, like the dream space or, you know, uh, in Firewalk with Me, 
that was like another another space where this kind of this weird mountain bar where the the band is playing and there's like mm-hmm. a million cigarettes on the floor you know it's like this the darkness that people um participate in after hours right so do you have that's something so in the time that we were obsessed with it back in the 90s they finally have come out with what they're calling Firewalk with me the missing pieces have you tried those out are you you mean uh the missing pieces from Firewalk with me specifically yes yeah well i well for instance i'm i am utterly fascinated well I, i'll i'll put it right out there i i am a huge david bowie fan and uh so when he was in Firewalk with me and that's that is my favorite sequence in the entire probably the entire show and, and, and movie. Uh, the fact that, you know, agent Philip Jeffries, uh, is on a case in 1987 vanishes returns in 1989, uh, February 16th, actually specifically that's noted by uh, Cooper himself. And he has gone to Buenos Aires, uh, which also translates as pure air or good air, you know, and then in the little man from another place says we descended from pure air, so Buenos Aires uh, it seems to play a key role in all of this for some reason. Um, but there, again, there, there seems to be a link to South America with uh, Jeffries and, and what he's discovered down there. Because recall when uh, Cole and Rosenfield talk about the Blue Rose case, it, and it says it doesn't get any bluer. Uh, Rosenfield talks about uh, our man in Colombia, which is you know the the nation of Colombia. So there seems to be a. Does this have to do with the cocaine that Becky Burnett, which apparently is uh, was that Shelley Johnson's daughter, the, this new young woman who's who's with uh, that loser who was trying to get a job with uh, Mike Nelson. Recall that. Yes, and that's the first time we see Mike. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, he doesn't look all that much different after all these years. Um, but th- so there seems to be a, obviously a drug angle. There always seems to be drugs involved in the show, um, particularly cocaine seems to pay, play a big role. Um, so is is Horn now? You know, is he the big? You know, with his with Jerry Horn, obviously a big pot, you know, farmer in Washington State and totally hippied out. Uh, is there, you know, this, this whole drug trade? I mean, is, is this Horn running this? Is he, is he, you know, is he the? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, who was the interesting dog? character there was Brad, the officer from the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. So that there's that interesting moment in in I don't know what episode or what part, but uh, there's the front of the house, the sheriff's station, which feels like the '90s, which is this idea of, you know, it's it's Andy, Hawk, and Lucy. And then when Sheriff Trumitz walks to the back of the house, then you have like the real sheriff department with real computers. And it's like, you know, you're descending into this is what it really takes to police a community. Right. You know, that's a great point. My my brother, in fact, brought that up. He said, you know, technology also is kind of out of time, even with like the like the computer, the bad Cooper's using is. Remember, it's like in one of those uh, metal briefcases. Yeah. And Cooper's opening it. And then that's identical to the one Wyndham Earl was using back in the early 90s when he was in his little hovel in the woods with uh, Leo Johnson, uh, you know, and that whole thing going on when he was trying to. 
So it's like technology hasn't changed. I mean, and of course they play that up with Lucy, you know, not understanding what a cell phone is. So it's like this clash of technology and time and, and high weirdness. I mean, it's who, who thinks up this stuff? This is what's so remarkable. I can't, for years I've been saying there's no other show like this. I can't even imagine it. And which is so exciting. Cause I mean, I mean, I, if I were to write about this more, I mean, I'd have to devote full full time to just exploring all these different angles um, of the Twin Peaks universe and these characters and, and what they mean. And, you know, I, I've been bringing up the, this character of Wally Brando and, uh, you know, who played by Michael Sarah and what he represents. Is he a a actor, you know, and that, so that uh, Andy and Lucy can get over the death of their own child? Um, you know, there's been that, that was discussed. And then he talks about Lewis and Clark and how they were the first Caucasians to come to the Pacific Northwest. Well, there's that whole angle too, which I, which I brought up earlier and, and the impact it had on, uh, you know, Native Americans already here on the American continent. And if you, in the book, uh, The Secret History of Twin Peaks, they, they go into that aspect of it and the fact that Meriwether Lewis, the explorer sent by President Jefferson, on the Corps of Discovery, had an encounter with the Black Lodge through a uh, through the Owl Ring. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's so many angles to explore, and I, I'm so glad Mark. You know, I, Mark Frost and David Lynch working together on on this whole series is so important. I mean, I'm so glad that they're both still with us to to even you know bring you know put this forward because they complement each other so well. Um, and I don't think enough people really recognize that. I think kind of Mark Frost gets kind of lost in the background. I mean, David, Lynch, I'm a huge Lynch fan, but Mark Frost deserves a lot of credit as well um, for you know doing his the history and the and the research and the homework on all of this stuff and then putting it together. With that in mind, this the, your uh, memoir of Cooper. I think someone read that and found that the movie that shaped. Dale Cooper was this Cary Grant movie about the FBI. I was a, I think it was uh, James Jimmy Stewart. Okay, that that makes total sense. Yeah, but there the cover the the poster of that I think is really similar to this kind of figure that Dougie gets stuck at in Las Vegas in the courtyard, and that's kind of right. like the end of the episode, which we've been trained to expect the end the show to end kind of at the Roadhouse. And all of a sudden, when we end up at the Roadhouse last week, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is over already. But then the music starts, and then we it it, it goes into this extended scene. And the interesting thing worth noting is the uh, the musical band in that in the Roadhouse scene at part five is David Lynch's son, and that's when it gets super creepy. And it uh, with uh, Richard Horn's introduction, where he's you know he takes this young girl who uh, is interested in in the darkness and he really drops her into the darkness as deep as you can get right you know just immediately um, right yeah but that's so that's david lynch's son with this kind of it, the david lynch type music where it's like a sax band that's no singer but we're going to have a sax a sax frontman who's going to play like a rock jazz um, yeah absolutely Oh, I've been saying I've been saying for a while. You know, you never hear saxophone solos in rock music anymore, and and I miss that. 
But so it's interesting to me because uh, I went to, I mean, this is great because all summer long I'm going to be able to go to these, you know, these kind of parties that people have barbecues. And then, you know, of course, the topic of uh, conversation is, you know, what the heck's going on in Twin Peaks. And so I was at this MFA party and these guys were saying, well, I think that Twin Peaks is kind of an indictment or a, a consideration of the patriarchy in general. And so like... Twin Peaks is this good old boys, you know, it's all white males who are in the FBI and stuff. And even though they have this this core of 50s goodness, you know, at, at their heart, it still is imperfect courage. You know, like this is Cooper. So there's something, even, yeah. even though it has the best intentions, it will it will fail. Just like Cooper failed in that final episode of Twin Peaks that the that his he could not face the darkness because there's something flawed about America at its very core. Well, you know, and, and, and going back to this uh, John Milius uh, screenwriter this who had this atom bomb poster in his office, I was reading more about him, and, and he makes this interesting statement because um, he had this uh, production team. Apparently, uh, Robert Zemeckis was involved with him, um, interestingly enough, but uh, they had a motto they they were called the a team motto it was uh social irresponsibility and uh this guy says i believe in it it's refreshing it's liberating americans are basically socially irresponsible i mean who else would have invented the atomic bomb quite the same way the nazis would have invented it with the desire to conquer the world we were the only people that could have invented it with the desire not to conquer the world i mean that just goes to show you his, his mindset but it's kind of crazy i mean i think I think he kind of makes a point in that, you know, here we, to quote, end World War II, we, you know, bomb Nagasaki and uh, Hiroshima. I, I mean, that's just, it's it's sort of, it's insane. I mean, that we actually used it. And, and then there's a whole fact of the whole Harry S. Truman angle of having sheriff the sheriff named Harry S. Truman. And people may not recall this, but uh, David Lynch said, no, I, I didn't name him after the... Uh, the 33rd president, I named him after that old man who refused to leave Mount St. Helens before it uh, erupted in 1980. And his name was Harry R. Truman, and his middle name was Randall, um, which I could go on a whole other tangent about what that was all about. But you know, this Harry Truman, he just said, hell, I'm not leaving this mountain. This is where I've lived for 50 years, and I love this mountain, and my, me and my 16 cats were, gonna, were just going to write it out, see what happens. And uh, I think, you know, that, of course, Mount St. Helens is in Washington State. And, uh, you know, a lot of this happens in the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, David Lynch, of course, is from, what, Missoula, Montana. So, I mean, these place names, these places, this history, that means it means a lot to him. And uh, But I, a lot of people don't realize that about the, the choice of uh, the Sheriff Harry S. Truman's name. So, Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Harris Truman. I mean, he dropped. He's the one who dropped the bombs. I mean, he was the one who uh, gave the gave the green light to this. And I think this kind of goes back to this social irresponsibility that um, that we did this sort of thing. That we sort of, you know, swagger around the world and kind of do whatever we want. And uh, if we invent the atomic bomb, buy a gun, we're going to use it. And uh, and we did. But I think there's also this sort of karmic blowback that. Yeah, starts to starts to develop, and I think, you know, 
the tears uh, in the in that fabric of our world and the other world um, become bigger, and uh, you know more things are allowed to go in and out. I think, um, which reminds me, I was recently traveling in Louisville, Kentucky, and stopped in a little town called New Harmony, Indiana, and uh, it's a it's a small town founded by a Christian sect back in the early 1800s who were into labyrinths. They, they were obsessed with labyrinths. And I urge people to go there. Um, but the first place I see when I drive into this little town, this was just last month, the Black Lodge Coffee Roasters. And I'm like, whoa, wait, the Black Lodge, what the heck is this place? So I asked someone working on the street, I said, do you know anything about this place? Oh, no. They just, put, they just opened it in the old Cooper house. And I was like, Cooper House. What do you? What? Yes, yeah, it's just the name of. I guess there was a cooperage, you know, where they make for barrels, and that was the Cooper House. And and this young couple from Nashville moved to this little town in Indiana and opened this coffee roasters and called it up to Black Lodge. I, I go in the next day to have coffee, and it's all Twin Peaks out. I mean, it was. I was like, what is going on here? I mean, <laughs> the fact that I go in this weird little town and this woman named Annie, an older woman, who looked like Mrs. Chalfont. She reminded me of her, uh, the old woman from you know who, on the Meals on Wheels in the original series. And she uh, she comes in. Her name's Annie, and she says it's very thin here in New Harmony. And I immediately got her her meaning. It's very thin, meaning the 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 veil between our world and the next is very thin here in in this place. And there were apparently a, a lot of uh, Native American mounds in that area. It's near the near the uh, Ohio River. And so you had a lot of the mound culture near the Mississippi and Ohio River valleys. And, uh, you know, it was, and then we go to the little restaurant and this waiter's like dragging me around saying, I, uh, this ghost like pulled me, you know, pushed me down these stairs. And, you know, it was a very odd place, but I, it was very remarkable. So, but the black, to have your, this coffee house called the Black Lodge, when the first thing you see when you drive into town was, was <laughs> kind of blew my mind. Uh, okay, well, we, we'll probably have to talk about Kofifi. <laughs> I mean, the, oh, yeah. The, yeah, the funniness of reality and, and Twin Peaks kind of connecting. but uh, And then Cooper, definitely, in that last episode, we have like a real heavy coffee moment where, you know, he goes to this board meeting and he, you know, there's something about uh, serendipity with Dougie. I don't. People are referring to him as, you know, like, because he's Cooper, as far as we know. Dougie, you know, kind of like Forrest Gump, right? So the real Dougie, this manufactured entity, is is uh, apparently destroyed because in the in the Black Lodge or in in the you know in the space, what we assume is the Black Lodge, his head kind of you know he pops and he's done. But then in his place, what we think is the real Cooper has been, you know, traded out. But right. there's this air of ignorance. So it seems like he's moving through the world and letting life lead him to where he needs to be. And that's kind of what's instructed in part four with the uh, the casino moments where he's, you know, he's just pulling the handles that wherever he sees – the, the the Black Lodge icon. Right. The Red Room icon, yeah. But at this board meeting that he ends up at, at his actual work with 
Tom Sizemore, and there's kind of a, a some kind of tell on him too, because at you know the first thing we have these real Cooper moments where with authority, Dougie says he's lying, you know, which is kind of this Cooper trait, and then right. all of a sudden he's back to this kind of squishy headed, like there's, it's just, <laughs> and I think people are really irritated. Like this is, this can't happen. You know, there's no way that you, someone can just be swept along by serendipity and not, you, you know, um, it, yeah. Anyway. So he, he, he certainly has an affinity for coffee and that is seen, you know, that whole scene where, he steals one of his coworkers coffee and then uh the the guy with the all the stack of coffees says well i have this right. green tea latte that you can have frank <laughs> um but i'm that was a huge tangent because you were talking about truman and the interesting thing with truman in in this this season is that robert forrester is now our sheriff truman and he's right. Harry's brother, and I think his name is Frank, and we meet his wife, and he's sitting in Hawk's office, and uh, Truman is talking to his brother, Harry, about the tests and the medical stuff, and, right. and and then his wife, Doris, comes in, and so what did you think of her? Well, uh, she was uh, particularly unpleasant uh, and, and just sort of, you know, chastising her husband, uh, just... <laughs> I, I I wasn't sure what the purpose of that was, and he just sort of sat there and and took it. I you know I don't know. I, she didn't. I mean, it was one of those moments you you like okay you know check next. I mean, it was for me it was that way. I didn't get a lot out of it personally, um, but perhaps we'll learn more about what why she was so upset. Um, you know, uh, it's sort of like some of the scenes with Andy and uh, and Lucy. Um, but you know, who I'm really enjoying seeing is is Michael Horse's uh, Hawk character returning, and he's still sort of enduring uh, Lucy's sort of loopy behavior and sort of suffering in silence kind of kind of way. But uh, you know, I'm so glad he's in. There. He's he's I I think he's just a great actor and perfect in that role as as Deputy Hawk and. Of course, as we all know, it was Cooper who said if he was ever lost, he hopes uh, Hawk is the guy they send to find him. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And as they uh, kind of go back and look at the old case of Laura Palmer and, and the events afterward. Well, we're just about out of time. Let's talk about Jacoby a little bit, and then maybe we'll chat sure. for a little bit more. Um, in part five, we get an answer to some of the questions that we we had from the earlier parts, which is what is Jacoby doing out there in the mountains, the, you know, of Western Washington and, and why is he doing it? So what, what, who is he and what is he doing? Well, um, you know, he's, uh, he was obsessed of course, in these early series, uh, with Hawaii. He had spent time there. Uh, he's a, uh, psychiatrist, uh, and he's, he's written some books. Uh, he's taken probably a lot of, uh, substances over, over his lifetime. And, uh, he's, it seems like he's finally had it with the system. And I think you're, you're, as you said earlier in our interview or in, in discussion here, that, uh, it's an indictment of the whole system. 
and you know what we've become and what we've lost our way and uh and I think that's why uh Dr. Amp aka Dr. Jacoby has sort of gone off gone off the grid a bit and you know is now doing a little uh, his own podcast that apparently has some fans with uh Jerry Horn and uh, Nadine Hurley um they seem to be fans of his sort of it's sort of a maybe kind of a zen anarchist like I was talking about John Milius earlier kind of a you know, it's not. It's not just just you know dopey right wing. It's it's more than that. There's there's a maybe kind of conspiratorial angle to that. Um, Miguel Ferrer kind of played a somewhat similar character, interesting enough, in a John Sayles film called Silver City, which was kind of a it was kind of a mystery uh, political film that I really liked. I think I think it was really good. But uh, I think he's. Uh, yeah, selling shovels, gold-colored shovels, and, you know, get yourself out of the shit and, you know, get back to what's really important. And, you know, it's another another Lynchian symbol, you know, the gold shovel. Um, you know, whenever you go to a groundbreaking, you know, I've, as a reporter, I've covered many groundbreakings in my time, and they always have the special gold shovel, you know, that, where they, you know, smile for the camera and pretend like they're digging a hole. Well, you know, it's interesting because Cooper in uh, the My Life, My Tapes book talks about in 1973 spending time digging holes. That was his, his uh, you know, job as with the National uh, Park Service was digging holes. And I, I think there's a symbolism in there. We're digging ourselves in a deeper hole. Um, but how do we get out of it? And uh, in, as a side note, and I just wanted to say this, one of my friends who I watched the show with uh, religiously back in the day in, was a guy named Carter Albrecht. He's a he was a musician. He, he's he uh, was shot and killed ten years ago in Dallas. But um, I came across this, this CD of of like mixed songs the other day, and I hadn't heard it in a long time. And the song came on. It was called "Digging Deeper Holes for the Future," and it was by this guy, this Carter Albrecht, when he was in a band called the Sparrows. And it, it talks about that very idea of, you know, not taking care of what's going on now, but getting into bigger messes that'll lead to, to you getting deeper into a hole, essentially. And I think America is, is dug to the core of the earth by this point. I mean, it's, th- things have gotten so out of control and out of whack. I mean, I feel it every day. Just every, when I wake up, I think, what's what's happened today? And, you know, I don't have to name names. I think you know who I'm talking about, but it's we've got to figure out what's going on here. I think Lynch and Frost and and their team are are uh, putting together some really remarkable ideas that you know you just don't see on television. And you know I, they're very esoteric. They're they're very important. Um, I I I can't express that enough. I, I'm just I'm learning new things. I mean, it's helped me with kind of my sync investigations in my own life that I write about. Um, and if people go to reddirtreport.com, my, I talk about these things in Dust Devil Dreams. It's a section on the website, and uh, which, uh, <clears throat> which um, kind of allows me to kind of let it off my chest, I guess. Well, you said you didn't want to name names, but maybe I will. <laughs> because go, go for it. Yeah. last Sunday... There was a report in the New York Times, the Sunday Times, about what do they call the White House North, which is maybe this club in this golf course in in New Jersey, and there's a there's a picture of Trump with a golden shovel, 
And so I th- that kind of just tickled me, you know, it's like, and then in that later that evening, it was all about these golden shovels. But the interesting thing that I noticed that the show, if you go back to the beginning, I think it starts with, you know, the giant telling Cooper to listen to the sounds and there's all these, these kind of enigmatic clues. Right. But the first scene we see is of, of Jacoby doing whatever he's doing and we have no context for this and it's just kind of this so i i took that as maybe maybe this is it's hard for me because i don't know what to make of jacoby's podcast but perhaps the show itself is a golden shovel to shovel our shovel our way out of the shit but the the curiosity to me is when when i watched Jacoby's podcast again and it's scripted and it feels crass because at the end he's trying to sell these shovels so even though there is this there's this substance to it 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 itself has fallen prey to what the you know we're criticizing which is what David Lynch sometimes does where even though he's he's making a statement about something in his film he himself is also doing that thing that he's criticizing because that's the only way to show this um but with do you there was jacoby's tie had these lightning bolts on it it's a bow tie <laughs> what, yes yes what, what well did they, you know it did yeah, they kind of look like ss things to you is there a little bit of this <clears throat> this white ring uh like white nationalist flavor or is what? that am i just reading into that well, um, maybe in your neck of the woods it would be more evident, but um, I personally didn't pick up on that. I mean, I, from what he was saying, yeah, it was sort of a, a you know, one of my writers at Red Dirt Report, his name's Kevin Tudor, and he's I've been allowing him to sort of do these sort of uh, you know weekly analysis of you know the episodes, and he's been writing while I do more of a sync approach and kind of pull things out rather than just going over the actual you know show itself. Um, and he says, oh, it's like an Alex Jones type nationalist broadcast. I got, I, I know where he's coming from. I, I, I get that, but I, I feel like there's a little more depth there and a little more real. And for me, it, it, the lightning bolts stood out, um, kind of like the Aladdin Sane album cover with David Bowie with the, with, he had that lightning bolt. I, I, I don't take that that way personally, but you know, I could be wrong. I, I'd hate to think that a beloved character like Dr. Jacoby has has joined the Aryan Nation or something, or trying to attract that that group. But you know, with the alt right, with the rise of the alt right, that could be a reflection of what uh, what they're putting out there, specifically in the Pacific Northwest, where it's been uh, you know had a lot of growth over decades. Um, but you know, I'm. I will say I'm. I just want to say, Russ Tamblin. I'm glad you're still with us. I know you had a health scare here a year or two ago. I, a book I wrote on the music of 1966. I interviewed his brother, who Larry uh, Larry Tamblin is a member of the band the Standells, which are best known for their song "Dirty Water." Because I love that "Dirty Water." Boston, you're my home. So anyway, <laughs> just wanted to shout out to the the Tamblin brothers. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I see it's uh, 9-11 uh, a.m. where I am. So. 
You've been listening to Andrew Griffin on 42 Minutes of Production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. For more information about his work, visit his website, reddirtreport.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website, thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to complete audio uh, archive, complete access to full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio, and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and shovel your way out of the shit and into the truth. Only $29.99. <laughs> Send it to thesyncbook.com. <laughs> <laughs> if I could, I'd be your little spoon and kiss your face.